Hey, listeners, ever have trouble getting someone on the phone when you have a question about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person any time, day, or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Did you know that it is Asian American Pacific Islanders Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Carden, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meath. Plus, you can help support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA Scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted to the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American, Native, Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander-owned brands at Macy's.com or in-store. My dad, who's 83, still talks about the time that he met your dad. Where was that? At Lucky's. Oh, Lucky's. (laughs) Welcome back to Literally. It's me, Rob Lowe here. So... As many of you know, we've wrapped in, a, I think, an amazing season of this podcast. Just extraordinary people, extraordinary laughs, just great stories. Could not be happier with, with our season. And maybe you thought you'd have to wait months to hear new episodes. Well, you thought wrong. I am thrilled to say that we are coming back with all new episodes next week. And I couldn't be more excited for you to hear these conversations. But for this week, I wanted to go back to the vault and I want to revisit one of my all-time best episodes, I think. When, when I meet people and they say, guys, you've had so many f- interesting people. Which one should I listen to first? I got to tell you, I think this is the one. If I had to pick one, I think it's this Michael Douglas interview. And the reason I say that Not to name drop, but one of the smartest people in my industry is Ted Sarandos, maybe the most powerful man in show business today. He's a huge movie fan. He enjoys this podcast. He listens to everyone, and he is obsessed with this Michael Douglas episode. So with the blessings of the great Ted Sarandos here for your own listening purposes is what I think is our classic, our talk with Michael Douglas, which, by the way, I could have talked to him for five hours Hope you like it. Tell me what television was like in the 70s when you were doing Streets of San Francisco. What was that like? Well, Streets of San Francisco, first of all, was shot in San Francisco. And which was a rarity then, right? Unheard of? It was a rarity. It was a rarity for a couple of reasons. When you shoot on location... Um, it's a six-day week. Those days you shoot, you work Saturday too. Ooh. 
So we would uh, we would so we we moved up there, but. What it did, Rob, is it basically trained me. It was the first year of Streets of San Francisco was the result of a lawsuit that Quinn Martin, the producer, Quinn Martin had all these shows back then, FBI, Barnaby Jones, Cannon, all of those shows that, that he had. And so this was a lawsuit that he won from ABC. And we started in 71, 72, and I know this is hard for a lot of your listeners to realize, ABC was just the beginning of the third network on television. There was CBS, NBC, and ABC had just begun. Anyway, so this was the result of a lawsuit, which was 26-hour episodes uh, in a year, plus a two-hour movie intro. Oh, so my God. My, int- my, my beginning in television was 26-hour episodes at six-day weeks, Straight through, plus a two-hour movie. So it was eight, eight and a half months straight. And what it did to me, and then that was followed by three more years. I did the show for, for four years. So what it did for me is it made me the toughest mother yeah. that you would know. So in the rest of my career, um, both from a producing point of view, uh, from an acting point of view, what I learned about scripts, and I had the greatest mentor of my life, Carl Malden. Mm. Yeah. I could not have asked for a better man. And so what would happen, and he had a, a work ethic that was incredible, so he, we would guarantee that when we were doing an hour show, we would have the next hour show script already done. Right. So whenever we had a break between scenes or shots, we would rehearse the next week's script. So as a result, the writers hated us because the scripts had to be approximately seven to eight pages longer simply because we picked up our cues. Oh, wow. Because we knew the dialogue so well and everything else. And when you were the regulars on a show, you're doing the plot stuff and all that, not right. the character carrying. And we just boom, boom, boom. We go through this stuff. So it was a phenomenal, phenomenal experience for me. The hardest job that I've ever had in my life or anybody would have. And then set me up for the rest of my career that when I started producing and actors started complaining, I said, let me tell you a little story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and then obviously Cuckoo's Nest, which by the way, um, I just need to say, and we're friends and, and, and I, I know you'll be like, oh, stop, stop. But I, whenever I have people on like you, Michael, I need to just tell you how much you've meant to me. And a career like yours is what, I should only be so lucky as to aspire to and have. I mean this, and thank you, Rob. And I'll t- and I'll tell you another thing. Without Cuckoo's Nest, I don't know if I'm even an actor because what I I smuggled my cassette tape recorder into the theater right. to record Cuckoo's Nest uh. so I could have it. I've seen Cuckoo's Nest 70, yeah. 80 times. I know you, it was your dad's property. Right. He gifts it to you. Well, he didn't. I, I would like it to be gifted, but it was, <laughs> he had he had originally bought the book by Ken Kesey in what we call galley forms, which means before the book is actually published, he bought the rights to it. Wow! And he went back and he had it adapted. This is like nineteen fifty or nineteen sixty, and he had it adapted into a play by Dale Wasserman. He, wait, wait, he had it adapted into he a did, play? Yeah, Kirk did. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, and he went back. 
you know, a lot of actors, some points of their careers go back to Broadway or theater. Dad went back right after Spartacus. Oh my God! He was at the height of his career, of his 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 acting career, and he went back uh, to, and he did the play, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, written by Dale Wasserman. Gene Wilder was in the cast. What? Yeah, Gene Wilder was in the cast. Billy Daniels, and and so he played. I think Gene played Billy Bibbit. And oh then uh, I bet he did. I bet he was brilliant. And the idea, like a lot of like other actors who did that, was the idea was okay, it'd be a Broadway, be success, and then we'll develop it into a film. Well, it didn't didn't succeed. Um, I mean, a lot of it was. I think it was really kind of ahead of its time, and everything. So it didn't really work out. And as a result, when Dad had finished the the run of the show and he tried for a number of years two three years to try to get it made into a, into a movie he couldn't do it so he was putting it up for sale for his company he was going to sell the rights to it meanwhile i'm at the university of california at santa barbara mm-hmm. and i'm taking a class in in 20th century american literature and part of the class is this new novel called One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Unbelievable. And this is the height. This is 63, 64, 65. There's a lot of good stuff was going on in California <laughs> yeah. back then. So the whole vein of this book, which was a, which talked about the big chief and this kind of hallucination cloud that he was in and how he saw things and everything appealed to a whole generation. And so I remember just loving this book. And I finished college, I've begun my career, and then I find out that dad has the rights to it. I knew that, but I didn't think about it. And is selling them. So I said, well, dad, look, let me, let me try to run with this. Let me try to get this set up. And um, I'll guarantee you, you know, half, you know, you'll have the credit of your company. Obviously, try to get you because I know how much you want to play the part. And, and, uh, and you'll have half of whatever I can get. And he said, okay, yeah, that's a deal. You can run with it. So I ran for it, you know, I worked about, I, I developed a screenplay with a local friend, and then I tried to get it going, and I worked about three, three and a half years, and one of the things I had done was taken my father's file and seen who had shown interest in the project. And one of the people that showed interest was a man named Saul Zantz, who owned a company called Fantasy Records up in uh, up in Berkeley, California? Uh, mainly, they had milestone prestige jazz labels, but they had just recently signed this group. I know who they are. He, he was he was a guest on the show recently. Oh, there you go, John Fogarty. Yeah, it is. Oh. So it was Creedence Clearwater Revival. That's right. And if you mention Saul's oh, name to John, he wrote a song. <laughs> Zance can't dance, dance but he'll steal, steal your money. money. <laughs> right. Well, it was Saul, rest in peace. And yes. I, I was a lovely man, I'm sure. There was two sides. But in any event, I reached out to Saul and said, What happened with all of this? And he said, Well, we, and there was a misunderstanding. And anyway, I got together with Saul, and Saul was based. In, in Berkeley, California, across the bridge from San Francisco. So while I was doing the TV show, we were developing Cuckoo's Nest, and it just so happened that both things were up in the Bay Area. And all your time off, and your six days all a my, week. All, all my time off, or when I had a break, we'd go, we, I'd, I'd go over there. And then eventually, that's how uh, the picture, and I, so I left the series, and I've always been grateful to both Carl Malden and to the producer, Quinn Martin, because... You'll appreciate this, Rob. I had a five-year contract, and after four years, I said, I'd like to leave. I want to go. 
Well, you try that today, oh, yeah. and they just yes. they tell you they tell you they tell you what they said. And both Carl and Quinn said, "You know, I know how much this project means to you. I know you've talked about it so much." And they said, "Good luck, go." It's been, wow. and they let me out of my contract, and then we went off and uh, uh, made Cuckoo's Nest. I have so many thoughts, but one of them is that those were the days when a mensch could do something in our business yeah. and wasn't answering to a vertical corporation, that would never happen today. Well, I think what you just said is the key major, well, a couple of big differences, but that was the major difference. The studios, you talk to a studio head, he was the head. Yes. The studio was, was not some part of this vertically integrated media corporation that had a fixed budget for that year and they had to do it. You know, in those days, quarterly quarterly statements, quarterly earnings was not the most important uh, thing in the world. You try to watch your budget, but there was much more talent-friendly studios, whether they had a feeling or, or whatever, tended to go more with talent uh, until they got totally screwed. You know, there were yep. those pictures that went way over, over budget than they, they do now. And the guy that was head of the studio was the head. Not some low-lying rung in all the yeah. other executives that now sit in these in these vertically integrated companies. I mean, you get to, what you get today is I'd love to I'd love to help you, but I gotta I, I gotta send it up the flagpole. Exactly, and, exactly. Um, I'm going back. I remember the, we had two weeks of rehearsal um, for Jack, and we had all the actors up at this state mental hospital uh, that we were using, um, and it was an active hospital. And uh, the, the the president or the, the the head, the doctor of the hospital, had really coordinated everything for us and identified all of the actors and what their characteristics were and gave them certain patients to oh. sort of watch and keep a part of. And they would let the actors go into these group therapy sessions and all of that. Wow. Anyway, so we, they've been doing this like for about two weeks. Some of them were up actually sleeping on the set in the ward. Jack finally gets up after finishing his picture, and he's doing the first morning of working with all these actors. Is he coming off five easy pieces? He, he was no. He's coming off the last detail. detail. The last detail. Okay. He's coming off the last detail, and finally we break at lunch in there, and I see him looking around and everything. I want to make my stars comfortable, and finally I see him slide his tray away, and walk outside like he says he gets some air. See Jack, hey, you, you okay, Jack? You all right? I said, yeah, who are these guys? Don't they even break character at lunchtime? I mean, it's just, who are these guys? And everybody was so much into character the whole time, they didn't have any idea what was going on. Well, the other thing is, for those of you, you know, a lot of people ask, what a, what does a producer do? Right. That's what, what I just heard from you right now is probably the best example. You, you said just as if it were nothing, you worked for three years. Oh yeah, no minimum. Well, producing is is really finding the material in most cases, first of all, or maybe somebody brings it to you. But you start with a piece of material. Either you develop a screenplay from an idea or you find a book that you really like and you option the book and you develop that into a screenplay. And then hopefully you get that piece of material in a good enough in a good enough shape to attract other people, like a director or a good director. And um, you produced China Syndrome, though, too. I right? did, yeah. Um, one of my favorite movies, and one of the most... What did you think when the, the when it finally gets released, and 13 days later, Three Mile Island happens? 
Um, I thought it was an epiphany for me. It was a religious experience. Um, I got involved with the project not because I was an anti-nuke. I thought it was a great horror movie about this man versus the machines. And then as we got uh, uh, involved in the process and we knew we needed some expertise and we hired these two GE quality assurance uh, nuclear guys who basically had lost faith in the system and now were working on the other side. They came together with us and we worked out um, the whole finale with the meltdown. They worked out a whole sequence of events. And so we worked out a sequence of 150 computer events just would give us the action in the end. And Rob, when the accident at Three Mile Island happened and when they expressed, explained what the, all the steps were that went on. And, and Aaron Latham wrote an article, actually, I remember for uh, Esquire. Of the 150 steps in our movie, 90% of them were exactly the same as the Three Mile Island accident. Wow. So I had this epiphany, and I said, well, this is, this is, is, is really something. So, um, Jack Lemmon, how great is he in that movie? He was so great, you know, and, and, and I was, I was 30, uh, 32, I guess. Then. And I go to, I remember you know, going to Jack, I said, you know, we're talking, kind of reading through, I said, Jack, you know, you're playing like, you, you're playing an ex-nuclear uh, submarine commander, you know, you're an ex, so we can't do any of that, we can't do any, you know, the double takes, the triple things, it's got to be, you know, you got to really kind of clean up. He just looked at me and he said, yeah, you know, there's one thing about, about Douglas, you know, he hits you with a thousand powder puffs. He said, he, he said, he makes it, you know, he gets his point across kind of gently and everything, but he did such a wonderful job. He, he was great. And, and, and Jane, there was no part for Jane in that movie. Richard Dreyfus was supposed to play the role and then he backed out and Jane had been developing the Karen Silkwood story. Uh, over at the same studio, was was having trouble. They said, "Look, why don't you guys get together?" And so I, I, I co-produced it with with Jane and her company. I think back at all those times and talk about somebody. She, she was basically she gave all her money to her to her husbands in terms of Tom Hayden at the time. She donated almost all her money to his political campaigns, and she would leave work at night. And she'd run off and she was exercising and doing this weird thing called an exercise video. We didn't even know. And Jane was like, because video had just started. Video was just the first thing that had come out. And so she started these exercise videos and we know where that went. I remember getting a phone call from Jane Fonda and Tom Hayden as a young actor. Right. And, and I didn't know Jane. She, she would cold, she and Tom would cold call every kind of up and coming young actor and, and ask them to come over for a sort of salon at their house. And we would talk here what they're up talk, to. Yeah. And yeah. hear what they're up to and talk about politics. And that was a big part of my life for a really, really mm. long time. Um, and, uh, I do remember towards the end and she and Tom had divorced. I, I'll never forget when she goes, you know, who called me and wants to date me. Ted Turner. What am I going <laughs> to do with Ted Turner? And I was like, you should go out on a date with Ted Turner. Summer is almost here. Are you ready to throw open your windows or throw them away? If they're drafty, foggy, or impossible to clean, talk to your friends at Window World. Window World specializes in home transformation with beautiful, energy-efficient windows, entry doors, and siding. 
featuring Energy Star certification and the good housekeeping seal. Call 1-800-WINDOW-WORLD, schedule your free consultation, and tell them you heard about it here on Literally the Rob Lowe. Window World, America's exterior remodeler. Well, you know, no two travelers are exactly alike, and that means no two trips should be either. Texas, vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activity allow for such an infinite number of different travel experiences. I mean, I love Texas. I go like this, the people of Dallas, the culture of Austin, and I love any time I get there. If you're a beach person, well, you can go have fun in the sun with Texas 350 miles of coastline. If you're a rugged vacation type, there's campgrounds, hiking trails, state parks, golf is nuts there, foodies, you got your Texas barbecue and live music in Austin. And of course, if you're into the cowboy scene, you can certainly find it there. And now, Travel Texas offers a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom trip matched to their own unique interests. So visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters, yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. The weather is getting warmer. It's time to ditch the jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. But there's no need to waste money on clothes that only last one season with Quince. Now you can get high-quality pieces that never go out of style. You'll be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts for $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering with the top factories, Quince cuts out the middleman and passes the savings directly onto you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. My producer recently made an order for Quince, and here's what he had to say. I'm really excited to revamp my closet with Quince. I cannot wait for my items to arrive from Quince. You know, I'm a sweater guy. I was looking at that burgundy cashmere crew neck. I love the blue chore jacket. Maybe I'll throw some joggers in there. So upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash Rob for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Rob to get free shipping and 360 day returns. Quince.com slash Rob. I see Bob Z all the time up here, by the way. This is Bob Zemeckis, who uh, um, really turned you into the, the leading man movie star you were meant to be with <laughs> Romancing the Stone. Well, he was he was great. I mean, again, that was uh, Romancing the Stone was one of those projects that I was again producing. Uh, I didn't really have the intention of doing anything. It was Romancing was written first time by a woman named Diane Thomas, who is. Uh, Working as a as a waitress at said Alice's restaurant on the pier in Malibu yes. Pier, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it, it was. Yeah, sure. It was Alice's restaurant back there on, on the Malibu Pier, and this was her first script, and it was great. And um, I had a studio relationship that time um, at Columbia, and Sherry Lansing, who I had met as an executive, who I had met doing uh, China Syndrome, was there. And ended up buying the script for a substantial amount of money and was criticized supposedly for why would you pay that much money for a first-term writer? 
And my ta- my take on material is first time, tenth time. If it's good, yeah. Why should somebody be punished? You know, for it's good. So I was really happy. It was it was a it was a great piece, and um, and then I was trying to figure out who the right director to, was to do it. And Bob, bless his soul, had gone to U- USC to the film school and and had done a couple of movies. One was called Used Cars. Yep. And the other one was like, "Want to hold your hand?" And he had he had Steven Spielberg as his sort of uh, mentor and also executive producer. And those two pictures didn't work out very well. So poor Bob had sort of fallen in with Bob Gale, his writing partner into just sort of a writing thing, and he, he was all about 25, 26 years old. He was a, he was a has-been at 25. He was a has-been at 25. Yeah. And I loved used cars in particular. I thought he had a great sense of humor and the right kind of tone. And so I went after uh, uh, Bob, and also, you know, he, he uh, they're, they're really good writers and, and all of that. Yep. And then um, we went... <laughs> Yeah, you, you got time for this? Yeah, yeah, all right, this is okay. why we're here. All right. Okay. You just asked me how long we're going to talk. This is why. This okay, is the I'll, goal. I got a couple here. Yeah, for yeah. So we um, we go down to uh, uh, Mexico to do a, a pre, you know, pre-production thing to figure out how to do this thing. And like the classic story in the script where it says two words, Rome burns. Yes. You yes, know, which, yes. which means about a month of shooting, <laughs> shooting <clears throat> production, all that. Takes you a month to shoot one sentence in the script, right? Yeah. And so, in, in, in Diane's script, we had this thing called the mudslide. Oh yes, you know, we uh, remember it well. We remember it well. And anyway, we got down to the realities of what we were going to do uh, down there. You know, in terms of she said, "Wow, this is really tough." And on the way back, we stopped by to see Amy Irving, who was the studio's. Uh, no, sorry, I'm getting all right. Deborah Winger. Oh. It was Deborah Winger uh, because she was the studio's first choice, and she was in. We were in Mexico. She was in Texas doing Terms of Endearment, and um, she normally doesn't deal with actors or anything else while she's doing a film, which I understand. But yep. she said, I'll, "I'll hear what they have to say," and we talked. And so Bob Did you go and to I, the set. Did you go? Bob to- and I. We didn't go to the set. But- I mean, off the piece. She was actually. She was spending her time in the hospital because she plays terminally ill in yes. the picture. So she was doing some method work, I guess, or staying and living in the hospital. She comes out for us to have a dinner one night, and we all have dinner together, and we're talking and knocking back some tequilas and this and that. And we walk out, and just as you would kind of go, oh, you, and give somebody a little punch in the arm, you know, oh, like joking around, she goes, oh, you, and she reaches over and she bites me on my arm. Ah, ah, bites me, like, bites, but he bites me. So I go, and she's like joking, I'm looking at her, I go, I don't know, man, I'm thinking this could be rough. And she seems interested. And I go back, and it's broken the skin and no all way. that. So I go back, we get back, Bob and I go back to, we go back to uh, Hollywood and we go down and meet, see the studio to talk to them about our, our scout and our location scout and what happened and what we're doing and about Deborah Winger and all that. And we're taking the whole thing and then we come to Deborah Winger and I break down in tears and said, I can't go to the jungle <laughs> with her and she bit me, look, she bit me in the arm. I said, I can't do it, she can't do it. Now, Michael, calm down. I know, it's just it's not worth it. It's just too hard to make the picture to do. So they said, okay, all right, okay. And fortunately, uh, one of the executives at that time, 
was living in a condo. You know, this this uh, actress came up to me the other day, actually asking. I think it was for sugar. It was what knocked on my door. And uh, I just saw this movie she did called Body Heat. Mm. And this girl, Kathleen Turner, that you should really maybe, we should think about her. And that was how Kathleen uh, came about. And then I I went through two or three guys, you know, uh, tried to get Jack to do the part, talked to Burt Reynolds, I think, at one time, and this and that. And, and, uh, and finally, they didn't work out. And so I found a studio that would let me do the part. Because one of the interesting things early in my career with having won the Oscar for, for Wall Street for Best Film and was a Academy Award-winning producer, I couldn't get hired as an actor because I was still a television actor. And those are the days, if you remember, how separate the rails were yes, very. between a television actor and being in movies. And one of the great things that's happening these days is streaming. Yep. Because streaming has made this bridge between bringing in uh, feature film talent, writers, actors, directors, as well as television talent. It's that, again, uh, the, the, by the way, this is now officially my favorite episode of the podcast. <laughs> Period. Full stop. He, he says that. No, no, no. Everybody. I do not. This is it. Uh, I mean, first of all, Deborah Winger, there's no one. I mean, Officer and a Gentleman, Urban Cowboy. Yeah. So Term, talented. Terms of endearment. Very, very talented. But she was a biter, as it turns out. <laughs> she was a character. She was Bless a, your soul. She was a character. Um, in the Comiskey Method, you play an acting coach. Right, right. So what is your... Look, you, you know all there is to know about acting, and you played an acting. Comiskey is a great... What, where, where are you on the method? Because I have, I have thoughts, and I'd love to know yours. Well, you know... Acting was very painful for me. Acting was, I was, I don't know if it was a, act, a direct method, but somebody early, very early on said to me, you know, the camera can tell when you're lying. Yes. Ooh, said, the camera can tell when you're lying. I went, oh my gosh. And so I became consumed with some type of reality of and, and terrified that if I was acting because the camera... But no, and it wasn't. It wasn't as late until actually as late as Fatal Attraction, and I was getting ready for my character. He's a lawyer in New York, huh? Yeah. Well, I could be a lawyer. He said he's uh, you know, he's had an extramarital affair. I said, well, that's that's possible. You know, I could might 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 can imagine that. And so there's a point where I said, well, wait a minute, I. I, Michael, I, 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 could, I can, pl can play this part. And then I realize I lie every day. I tell a white lie every day, pretty much, you know, maybe sometimes bigger lies to whoever. I get away with it. Acting is about lying. And it's such a silly thing to say, Rob, but this is the thing that freed, totally freed me up. I started laughing hysterically. You can do anything. It's all about lying. So... I guess I'm trying to say that as to the separation of what the method is. Certainly you draw on, on memory recall and all of that, but a lot of it is your ability to, uh, uh, to make people believe however you're going to emotionally what you're, what you're doing, whether you feel it or not. And unfortunately, the really good actors, I'm thinking about Marlon Brando, uh, Jack Nicholson, even Sean Penn to a little bit, 
have such a disdain for acting. Yes. Because they have such a disdain because it's it's so effortless for them because they have learned a long time ago the sense of just that I'll bring the camera to me. I'm not going to have to. I don't do anything. I'm bringing the camera and the attention to me and and I'm going to do what I want. And they realize that the more they have that confidence, the more they realize I can do anything I want. Why well, us schmucks are out there trying to, you know, act or make it believe. So I remember my acting teacher in New York who was a benevolent teacher and not critical and supportive and uh, try to be a nice person, but just to say, Michael, you're, you do like to hide behind characters. I mean, you do sometimes um, a lot of the stuff involves just one's own persona, you know. So I do think there is character acting, um, and there's not. I mean, we 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 shared uh, uh, something called Behind the Candelabra. But that was some character work on both of our parts. Which you know, to this day, Rob, and you know, both Matt and David and I, we both walked. We saw you the first time. I fell to my knees. I never laughed so hard in my life. You, you know, and you knew it. You knew you had so much fun in that role, and were so good. And and that's the fun of character stuff. Character allows you to act like a clown. Clown. So that's I think right. there is a truth to, to two types of acting. One is painting your face. Yes. One is you know making the character, and it allows you other things. And the other one is taking a Kleenex with stuff and wiping the makeup off you and trying to find the truth. You know, trying to find the truth, and then hope the writing is good enough that the writing is good enough dramatically and everything else that the truth will hold up. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I was talking to, to Kurt Russell about it. And, yeah. And who is another fantastic actor. Yeah. yeah he's he's just fantastic. And he, he's thing is he's like a, a truth architect and, and, and that is w- what it is. It's, it's, peeling away the artifice but it is freeing when when i got to put those dentures oh, in oh you were so funny you were so good there's in the t- when i come to your house and you show the portrait <laughs> as Liberace, matt matt never looked at me he couldn't right. he literally could not look at me and uh, uh we had a lot of fun that's that's the joy richard the gravenaise a great script. great screenwriter great script steven soderbergh a great director Really cast well. You have so many great moments in it. I mean, one of my, I always like to find the the moments that other people might miss. In, right. You, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you have a moment early in the movie. I think you, this is the best just even saying, I think you're in the hot tub with Matt. Right. And, and you're asking him about his life. Right. And, and you're mildly interested at best. Right. And what right. the actual answers are. Right. Right. And he, yeah. talk, and he talks about, um, He's come from a farm and, and he really wants to, and he loves animals. And one day he really wants a farm and you say something like, well, yes, of course. Cause the animals. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, right. Yes. The animals. <laughs> you know, the only thing I ever let interrupt my podcast, my dog, take a minute now. Please, pet your dog while you learn about Bark, the company dedicated to making dogs happy. Every month, BarkBox designs and delivers a whole new collection of toys and treats just for your best bud. 
Every toy is tailored to your pup's size and play style. From squeaky plush toys from BarkBox to ultra-tough, durable ones from Super Chewer. Every treat is made with yummy, healthy, all-natural ingredients like pumpkin and sweet potato. Each box is inspired by a new theme and comes with fun surprises for you and your dog. For a limited time, they'll double your first box of goodies for free. I love making my dogs happy. Love it. It's my favorite thing in the world. And my dogs are obsessed with their chewable toys. BarkBox offers treats, keep my dogs healthy, and amazing new toys that keep my dogs entertained. To get your free upgrade, go to BarkBox.com slash Rob. So I came home to a little gift in my bathroom the other day from our friends at Harry's. To get what you want, you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. You know who challenged the status quo? Harry's. They saw customers getting ripped off by questionable products in the shaving industry and decided they had something better to offer. So instead of charging the same old ridiculous prices, Harry's found a way to make their beautifully designed razors, and they are beautiful, for a fraction of the price of the other big brands. Exceptional products, honest prices. That's Harry's. They have the highest customer satisfaction in shaving history and a no-risk trial. Don't like your shave? No worries. It's on them. Convenient subscription options that you can cancel at any time. And Harry's also has other self-care products that meet the same quality standards as their razors. Richly lathering, skin-softening body wash and scents like Redwood, Wildland, and Stone. And an extra high-quality, amazing-smelling deodorant for just five bucks. I love their stuff. I'm so impressed by Harry's products. All of it. It's all good. Don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash Rob. That's harrys.com slash Rob for a $3 trial set. For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking... I might feel some pain at some point, but with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Okay, here's my bold hot take. I put Liberace up there with Gordon Gecko. Right. For sure. Well, yeah. That was one of those unique situations. Remember, we, we made it for H, HBO. That's right. And it was it was shown as a feature film in, in, in Europe. Yep. As a feature film. And we took it to Cannes. And it's hard for me to talk about it per se, but there's a lot of discussion about my role being up for a Best Actor nomination. And at that, at that time, Steven Spielberg was president of the, uh, of the jury, and uh, we would dismissed it as because it could not be shown, it was not be treated as a film. And there was some beef at the time, which, you know, the time, is, well, it, was, it was shown as a, as a feature film. Well, I got, I got one worse for you. I'm the only person that didn't win every award on that show. <laughs> and, and, do you, and, and do you know why? Because I, my screen time 
right. did not be once there was somebody who famously won an award for one scene, right? But people were irate. And they said, we have to change this. You can't just waltz into a thing and because you're famous and people like you win an award for one scene for supporting. So right. they did a, an actual clock. And I was, not, and Soderbergh told me this, I was 90 seconds of screen time away from qualifying. I mean, uh, oh no. That's, that's right. So but I would never knew why, is that the reason that, why? That because I why. remember that we, is why. we were all were like, couldn't believe it. That's right. That's exactly why. And I, it's the first time I realized, I didn't know that. And it, the, all those rules are so because you would have won. You you, we, you you did one. You yeah. won every award that there was. And, yeah. And and should have. And and should have. Well, it was a, it was a but it, I mean those are the situations where you got a good part. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember also what happened. I was just coming off of cancer. I had right. I had four stage stage four uh, tongue cancer and had a serious uh, sequence of uh, of chemo and radiation. And thought my career was over, and this and that, and this script came in. I thought, I, but gee, I couldn't believe it. It was, it was so good. We got together, and then Stephen said to me, "You know, Soderbergh, the director, I, I'm, Michael, I got this conflict, so I'm going to have to do this other movie. So we're probably going to have to wait for this till next year." And Matt also said, "You know, yeah, we both this. So yeah, we can do this next year." And I was devastated. I thought this is never going to happen, and just they're putting the whole thing off. The reality was that they both had taken one look at me, <laughs> and you know, I was just happy to be alive. Right. Forgotten the fact that I lost thirty pounds and looked like I'd been in Auschwitz, right. um, and said, "Look, give me a year till it gets back." Get strong. And I was so so grateful for their compassion and, and their thoughtfulness you know to take it on themselves and not to, 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 to blame me they're they're great they're great guys both of them yeah but my point is that you savor those situations that you have when you got a good script good director and a good cast you know and, and you want everybody to be your phone's talking to you siri not now siri siri working on that no you work on shit not working on, working on that. Amazing. please keep that in the podcast it's so good <laughs> Am I crazy that I remember the time when you were doing Wall Street and I was doing this other movie, Masquerade? It knew, we were in and out of New York, passing each other, swapping location, out on the hammock. That was the height of the 80s craziness on sets, right? At least it wasn't my set. I remember Charlie was for yeah. sure. And all and Oliver, I would go out with Oliver on the weekends. Well, you, you, you guys were, I, I, didn't, I didn't, I was totally blind to Charlie. Charlie was. You know, it was one of those, whatever his uh, issues were, it was... On the set, he was... A, a the set, set. He, was, he was right there. He was right there on the set. Always and, was, yeah. Yeah. You know, I've been sober now 30-some years, and, and part of my thing was, if I can show up and, and, and perform, right. then I... Then I don't have a problem. That, yeah. Thank you. Exactly. You, 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 and then you, if you, when you do work, then your job is the last thing to go. Yeah, I got to do it, right? <laughs> it's it's the then, last. then when the job's gone, then, then everything else is already the relationship. Any relationship <laughs> you had is, is, okay, you've done it now. You took care of it. Now the job's gone. That's now right. what are you going to do? That's so true. <laughs> God, I remember, one, I remember one time we were in some loft in downtown New York, and I think... Everybody was taking dropped acid or something, and and Charlie started getting dressed. So where are you going? He goes, I'm getting picked up for Wall Street in ten minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he none had... of that happens. None of that happens in the business now. I mean, it was when I I don't know about you, but I mean, this is your producer. Maybe maybe it didn't rise to your level, but there was a time where 
someone was selling drugs on the set. Oh, your prop man. Your prop man didn't have to sell it. The prop man was part of his his okay. whole thing. Good. For okay. me, it was already passed by. For me, it was the 70s. It was the 70s and the early uh, 80s. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly in, in, into... Wall Street was 85, 84, 85, yeah, up until probably the 90s. And, and, I, well, you know what it is? It's the other part of the vertical integration. Well, that's it. Yeah. That killed it. Yeah, the days of uh, the prop men dealing out of the back. When, when I did Outsiders, I was, I was, the drinking age was 21. Right. I was 17. The earliest drinking age in the country was 18. I was 17 and I would get in the van. It was a Warner Brothers movie. I would get in the van with, uh, C. Thomas Howe was playing Pony Boy. He was the lead in the movie. He was 15. And they would have an open cooler of beers right. for us. Well, I mean, that's what the business used to be. How old were you on your first job? My very first job was with an actress named Eileen Brennan. I knew Eileen Brennan, sure. Um, and uh, Jane Eisner yeah. producing it. Yeah. And it was called A New Kind of Family, and it was on ABC, and it was ni- that was 1979. Wow. So I was, fi- I was 15. Yeah. yeah. Right? Well, you've aged very well, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Or as my character would say, thank, thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> do you know that I, do you remember the commercials? Um, you, you'd moved away from LSU, you might not, the, the um, men's warehouse commercials, where the guy would go, you're going to like the way you look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Back that's, east. I, mean, I, remember him? I just, stole yeah. that voice for, that's the voice that's, I'm using in Behind the Candelabra. <laughs> because I was like, I know how Liberace speaks. Right, right. And I know Matt is playing Super Faye as well. Right, I right. I got to do something on the other side of it. Right. So I went for right. the most like gravelly <laughs> kind of like. Eh. It was, it was perfect. You, you, it was just perfect. You had, and I just savored to watch how much fun you were having too. He just. Right? Love, oh, you just love me. I don't know how long. How long that makeup take? The makeup took two hours. Two in, hours. In the I know. So you better like what you're doing. Well, and the other thing was every. You know how as an actor, at, at towards the end of takes, you will sort of milk it or just keep going, and they can use it or not use yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Stephen used every frame of everything I did. Oh, yeah. And I was like, like, why drink? He wanted to write more. He, he wanted to try to find more we could, to do. It was it, so good. It was so fun. It's it's such a it's one of my favorite things I've ever done. And to work with you, after all, I mean, listen, I remember going to see Running in the theaters. <laughs> I loved Running. Yeah. Okay. I loved I, Running. I loved Running. I was. I never. I ran marathons back then too. It was, it was like uh, it was a movie for your your listeners. Yeah. It was a, a movie where I played a runner and ultimately made the the Olympic team and the marathon team. Um, yeah, that was well. That was fun. I, I enjoyed Canada. I'll tell you that much. I, I was one of. The, that was a time when they're making a lot of pictures up in Canada. Oh yeah, and it was a wonderful world up there. Oh yes, was very, it Montreal very, by Montreal. chance? Montreal. What it, did I not know, or did I? Come on, baby, you can't kid a kid. Anybody know Montreal is a wonderful town? Yeah, it's just really, really great town. Well, um, this is good. I'm gonna now. I'm gonna get your your number, and we're gonna play golf. Yeah, let's do it, man. This, well, this, absolutely. This, this was be, great. My, my pleasure. Love to, love to catch up. I loved having you. This was so fun. Told you you'd like that one. I mean, Streets of San Francisco, Cuckoo's Nest, Deborah Winger biting him. By the way, the Deborah Winger face bite story is the best story I've ever gotten out of a guest 
that is involves the most famous people that I'd never heard before. For sure. Hands down. That's the one. Anyway, see you next week. And we will be back with all new episodes. I cannot wait. See you then. You've been listening to Literally with Rob Lowe, produced by me, Nick Liao, with help from associate producer Sarah Begar, researched by Alyssa Grawl. The podcast is executive produced by Rob Lowe for Low Profile, Adam Sachs, Jeff Ross and myself at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson at Stitcher. Booking by Deirdre Dodd, music by Devin Bryant. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Literally with Rob Lowe. A Team Coco production in association with Stitcher. I love fast cars, but there aren't a ton of high-performance EVs. They're certainly out here there. But when I when I get a chance to get behind the wheel of one, it's I love it. And I was blown away by the Kia EV6 GT. When you get behind the wheel of the Kia, it, it is literally like being in a state-of-the-art rocket ship, but also comfortable. The thing goes from zero to 60 in 3.4 seconds. It is the premium driving experience. And of course, it's an EV. So the climate thanks you. Sirius XM provides access to over 165 channels in the vehicle. Music, sports, news, comedy, yacht rock. Let's go. Little little steely Dan going in your Kia. Come on now. So check it out today. It is the all-electric Kia EV6 GT. I had a blast checking it out. Believe me, you should do it yourself via kia.com slash EV6. To learn more, that is kia.com slash EV6. Kia, movement that inspires.